I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today, we are discussing what could be the most important constitutional ruling of the term, if not of the past decade, and that is the question of whether the Constitution requires states to recognize same-sex marriage. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard arguments in what could be a once-in-a-generation case uh, for the nine justices, uh, and it posed two questions. Uh, First, does the Constitution uh, require states to recognize same-sex marriages? And second, does it compel states to recognize same-sex marriages legally recognized in other states? Uh, Joining us are two of the leading scholars and advocates on this issue. Both of them were in the courtroom yesterday, and we are thrilled to welcome them to our We the People constitutional podcasts. Uh, Paul M. Smith is chair of the Appellate and Supreme Court Practice and co-chair of the Media and First Amendment and Election Law and Redistricting Practices at Jenner and Block. Paul has argued 16 cases before the Supreme Court, and among his most important victories is Lawrence versus Texas, the landmark gay rights case from 2003 that could prove central to the court's decision on marriage equality. John Eastman is Henry Salvatore Professor of Law and Community Service at Chapman University's Fowler School of Law. He also served as the school's dean. Uh, John is the founding director of the Constitutional Jurisprudence Clinic, a public interest law firm affiliated with the Claremont Institute, and I'm delighted that he will be joining us at the National Constitution Center on June 2nd for our debate co-hosted with our friends at Intelligence Squared on whether or not the Constitution requires states to recognize gay marriage. Uh, Welcome, Paul and John. And Paul, let me start with you. Uh, You uh, won the Lawrence case uh, in 2003, where uh, Justice Kennedy, writing for the court, struck down bans on um, intimate conduct by same-sex couples. Tell us, uh, what was the relevance of the Lawrence case in yesterday's argument, and how might Justice Kennedy invoke his decision in Lawrence uh, as he thinks about the question of same-sex marriage. Well, uh, I, the Lawrence case does have a, a great deal of, uh, of relevance to, to the issues that are before the court now, uh, because while the, the issue in Lawrence was whether or not you could criminalize gay uh, sexual intimacy, uh, the, the way the court decided the case in saying that you could no longer do that was sort of laid a foundation for the arguments for uh, marriage equality. It, it, it said two important things, that, that uh, gay people, gay men and lesbians have long-term relationships which have the same meaning and importance in their lives as marriages of heterosexual couples and that those um, relationships deserve respect. Uh, and it said that uh, morality is not a basis on which the government can judge the decisions that individuals make about which partner to choose and, uh, in life. That, that is an issue in, in our country that the individual gets to decide on. It's not up to the government uh, to make decisions about whether you've made the right, right choice of family member or partner. And so once you have those um, basic building blocks in place, it becomes very difficult for the state to, uh, a state to uh, justify refusing to recognize uh, and, and give equal 
uh, legal status to the many thousands of same-sex couples who have formed uh, life partnerships, many of them raising children, uh, many of them adopting children under the laws of the very states that are out there. Uh, and uh, what you see then is a struggle for the by the defenders of the double standard of the refusal to uh, marry same-sex couples, a struggle to uh, come up with a justification that is persuasive uh, of why it is necessary to continue to have the, uh, maintain a traditional definition of marriage instead of uh, allowing this new group of people who are out there and need protection and status and uh, and all of the things that come with marriage as much as everyone else does. So I think that uh, you you will see Lawrence figuring very prominently in the opinions, if, whether they're majority or dissents, that, that support marriage equality. Uh, it was interesting to see the Solicitor General yesterday arguing uh, for equality, uh, uh, using Lawrence and saying uh, to Justice Kennedy very directly that because of Lawrence, people have been able to lead, lead more out lives that their families have become more protected in public and that we've learned a great deal about the reality of these relationships and these families because of Lawrence. I think that uh, Justice Kennedy will likely agree with that. At least uh, that's my hope. John, what do you make of Paul's assessment of Lawrence? It's true that in the Lawrence dissent, Justice Kennedy predicted that uh, or rather Justice Scalia predicted that uh, the fact that Kennedy said that moral disapproval was not a legitimate basis for legislation effectively decrees the end of morals legislation. And Justice Scalia predicted the end of laws against same-sex marriage and said that uh, uh, arguments to the contrary, such as the idea that the encouragement of procreation might be a basis for uh, maintaining traditional marriage would not be persuasive since, according to Scalia, the sterile and the elderly are allowed to marry. So I wonder what 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 is is Scalia's well, dissent in Lawrence going to be vindicated in this uh, current case? I, I don't think so. And, and Justice Scalia has a habit of uh, kind of uh, pressing the envelope in his dissents. Uh, sometimes his dissents come true, but sometimes he's sounding a cautionary note about not taking the next step. And when the court gets confronted with that next step, it, it recognizes the cautionary note and doesn't take it. And Justice O'Connor, in her concurring opinion in that case, of course, specifically said this would not reach the questions like marriage. And, and we've seen from Justice Kennedy uh, a, a distinction between the state prohibiting private conduct and the state being required to help subsidize or uh, endorse that conduct. And those are dramatically different things. And so the question is, where does Justice Kennedy come down on this and how does he see Lawrence playing out? And that's the big speculation. And uh, everybody, I think, generally agrees he's probably going to be the swing vote on this case. And so I think it's important to look at exactly what he said about just this question. <clears throat> He starts off uh, very right at the top of the argument, uh, right after Ju Chief Justice Roberts said uh, that the plaintiffs were not seeking to uh, enter or join the institution of marriage, but to redefine the institution. And Justice Kennedy says this, one of the problems I have with your case uh, is this word millennia that keeps coming to my mind, um, uh, that, that uh, we, we've had the understanding of marriage as between a man and a woman for millennia. The time between Brown versus Board of Education and the court's decision in Loving versus Virginia was only about 10 years. It's about the same time between Lawrence and this case. And but then he says, uh, and you know that's time enough for scholars to have figured out uh, is there any going to be any harms. Uh, but I don't think that's true. He says, I don't know. Ten years is so small compared to the millennia. He said, I don't even know how to count the decimals when we're talking about millennia. 
This definition has been with us for millennia, and it's very difficult for the court to say, oh, well, we know better. Now, uh, that, that kind of goes right to the heart of the issue. And the language on the other side is, 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 is adopted. The question of marriage equality assumes the very thing in dispute. Are, are two men uh, in a sexual relationship identical uh, to a man and a woman in a sexual relationship for the purposes uh, that the state has created the institution of marriage. And what is the state's purpose in, in regulating the loving relationship between people that don't have this capacity, inherent capacity, to procreate? There isn't one. And so, uh, you know, we look at why the reason uh, the state got involved in marriage in the first place, what the nature of that institution is, why society benefits from it. None of that applies to the same-sex relationship, or much of it doesn't apply to the same-sex relationship. And so it's perfectly legitimate for the state to say, we're going to create this institution that aims at a particular social problem, the unique procreative ability of men and women when they engage in sexual relations, and we want to channel that ability uh, into a stable institution, uh, what have you. And if we redefine the institution away from that core, uh, and this argument I think was made over and over again uh, during the case, uh, it, was, it was recognized by Justice Kennedy, it was at one point recognized by Justice Breyer. Uh, if, if we redefine the institution away from that core purpose uh, into something dramatically different, we'd be foolish to think that there aren't going to be some consequences in the draw that institution has had culturally on, on men and women entering into the institution of marriage and channeling that unique procreative ability. So that's what's at stake. And when Justice Kennedy talks about millennia, he's talking about not some longstanding bias. He's talking about the wisdom of the ages, that of every human culture that has come to the same conclusion about an institution very much like what we have as marriage now. And there's a reason for that. It's grounded in the basic biology of men and women, and the states have a fundamental interest in protecting that institution to do the work that it has always done so well in our civilization. Great. Okay, Paul, John has made a bunch of strong points as he tries to channel Justice Kennedy. First, he said, uh, like Chief Justice Roberts in the arguments yesterday, that Lawrence was about the idea that the state can't intrude on a personal relationship, and that's different from the argument in this case that the state has to sanction a relationship. Uh, second, he said that Kennedy really was struck by the millennia of uh, tradition, and that was a lot longer than the 10 years between Brown and Loving. And third, he, f he focused on the state's unique interest in encouraging procreation. Could you respond to those three points as you try to channel Justice Kennedy? Well, sure. I mean, there's no doubt that Lawrence was about uh, protecting people from interference in their lives by the government. Uh, but the rationale that was used to justify uh, the protection of people from that interference uh, was such that it makes it very difficult to stop there, as Justice Scalia himself recognized. And the reasons for that is uh, once you recognize that people have these long-term relationships, they are living in these families right now by the hundreds of thousands that they're raising children, uh, the, uh, and that the state has nothing to say about that, cannot, it cannot criticize it, is not, it's not up to the state to decide whether it was a good idea or a bad idea for these two people to move in together, two women or two men, that that's an individual choice that our Constitution protects, uh, along with their decision to have children, which they have every right to do under our Constitution. Uh, that, that at that point, the rationales for not extending uh, marriage rights to them fall away uh, very dramatically. And it, it is obviously true that marriage has been defined in a certain way for a very, very long time in many different societies, but those societies have not seen the existence of hundreds of thousands, or maybe we're getting toward millions of families in which the, the, the two heads of household are the same sex. They simply exist now in a way 
They didn't in the past, and, it, and they exist that way in part because the Constitution has already been understood to give those people the right to form those families. That they, those, their choices are protected, uh, and people are exercising those choices precisely because the diversity the diversity of humankind is such that there are many people who have uh, a, a gay sexual orientation and uh, seek simply to have the same happiness in life as everyone else, as indeed they should. And so the millennia argument, while Justice Kennedy raised it, I think was simply him expressing his discomfort with having to make a hard choice. But in the end, he, he made it clear, I think, over and over again in the argument that he, if he is forced to choose, he will choose to respect these families and these, the children that are being raised in these families. And so then you get to the argument about procreation. And the idea, as, as John suggested, that somehow there's no uh, procreation-related purpose served by extending marriage rights to same-sex couples seems to me simply to ignore the fact that while same-sex couples cannot biologically procreate without assistance, they in fact are raising children. Many of them are giving birth, the women in these, in these relationships. Many of the men are fathering children and then raising them. They are parents. And so the argument that somehow there is no state interest in giving those children the protection that the states seem to think is important of having their parents be married uh, simply makes no sense. Uh, and the, the, so what you saw with the Michigan lawyer, Mr. Birch, arguing yesterday for 45 minutes was an effort to explain how it makes sense to deny married parents to one group of children in order to somehow uh, give some benefit, procreation-related benefit, to other people. And the, the answer that he gave, which uh, John echoed today, was somehow that if we allow this group of people to have access to the full rights and uh, responsibilities of marriage, straight people will somehow in the future not marry, and they will have children without marriage. Uh, and the, the 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 argument is a uh, utterly speculative. Uh, there's no empirical support for it, and there's not even any logic for it. If it's valuable for people to be married and for their kids to have married parents, uh, then the people, then the heterosexual couples would continue to make that choice. Uh, and you know, the fact of the matter is, a lot of them aren't making that choice, but it has nothing to do with gay people or gay marriage. Uh, and so, uh, I think that that once you allow these families to come into existence and give them full constitutional recognition and protection, to say then that we're going to continue to keep them in second-class status because otherwise it would somehow affect the behavior of straight people and lead them to have to, to choose not to get married even when they're having children in the future is A, completely unsupported, and B, kind of illogical. John, can you respond to that strong claim that the responsible procreation argument is both not empirically supported and illogical? Justice Kagan also was pressing uh, on this point. She found it inexplicable that Ohio was suggesting adopted children would be better off if raised by married straight parents but not by married gay parents. Can you tell us as crisply as possible why it is uh, the case in, in logic and empirical evidence well, that uh, sure. recognizing gay marriage would discourage responsible procreation by straight people. And I guess I can't fault Paul for not having read all 155 briefs that were filed in the case, but in fact it is empirically <laughs> supported. Uh, we have uh, an additional 10 years of evidence on that, the Netherlands experiment. And what we found, uh, what the social science has found in the Netherlands is that the rate of decline of, ma of marriage among heterosexual couples was at about a 15% greater pace than the decline, the overall decline in marriage in its adjoining countries a after they adopted same-sex marriage. And that's not a surprise. We saw a very similar thing happen in the United States 40 years ago when we changed one of the other core 
uh, norms of marriage, the per- permanence of it, when legislatively a number of states, almost all of them now, uh, went to a no-fault divorce regime. Well, what did that do? The arguments were made identically then as they are now, that this is not going to have any effect on your marriage or even on the institution of marriage if you let some people uh, get a no-fault divorce. Well, it turned out to be uh, dramatically not true, that when you removed that permanent norm of the institution of marriage, all of a sudden people started thinking, well, I can get out of this whenever it ceases to be of my immediate interest. And so anytime a marriage hit a rocky road a spot on the, in the marriage, uh, people found it much easier to to say, I'm, I'm out of here, uh, that has had dramatic consequences because a number of kids that are now raised in broken homes with all of the attendant emotional and developmental problems that, that we know flows from that has skyrocketed. And so too here. We've got a norm of marriage that it is about the biological complementarity of men and women. Why? Because they are the ones that are uniquely capable of giving life to their children. And the social science that people on both sides of the aisle agree that the kids do best when raised by their biological parents. And so what society is doing here is trying to structure the institution that, that most likely results in that outcome whenever possible. Uh, when that outcome isn't possible for whatever reason, then you all have, have all sorts of uh, alternatives like adoption. And, you know, uh, same-sex or opposite-sex couple adoptions, those kids do equally well. But in both cases, they don't do as well on average uh, by, by a factor of two and a half times uh, as, as kids raised by their biological parents. So this was the question. It's empirically supported, and it's, and it's a matter of logic. In fact, the logic runs the other direction. If you're going to redefine the institution that, that focuses on the adult relationship rather than on this, on this unique capacity to generate kids relationship, you're, you're necessarily going to have at least some people in the population that, that substitute their own private, their own benefit for that of the kids. The norm will be dramatically weakened and the, and, and the consequences of society will result. Now, Justice Kagan and Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor were completely unwilling to accept that there was any possibility that there would be harms. But the critical vote here is going to come from Justice Kennedy. And again, what he said about this is rather dramatic. Your, your social science evidence is brand new. Uh, you know, in fact, it's so new that I don't think we ought to consider the social science evidence at all. We have no idea. And if you look back to what he said two years ago in the Proposition 8 case when this very question came up, and for the first time in, in my life of watching him on the court, he pounded the bench in anger with, when, when Ted Olson gave an argument that there will be no, no harm. He said, how do we know that? He pounded the bench. He said, we're, we're, you're talking about changing something that's been in place for millennia and, 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 you know, we're, and take us over a cliff, and we have no idea what's at the bottom of that cliff. That was dramatic then, and his comments about the social science evidence being too new to be able to tell us anything about the risk of harm to the institution itself and therefore to society is just too great. And it's hard to read that language from Justice Kennedy to think that he's not at least giving serious consideration to not upsetting this longstanding apple cart that every human civilization has gravitated toward in its understanding of marriage. A strong response from John. Paul, what is your uh, response? Let's take one more beat on this important question. John says there, John says there is both empirical evidence and logic supporting bans on same-sex marriage well, to promote straight marriage, and also that Justice Kennedy might be swayed by that because he is not, he doesn't want to credit uncertain empirical evidence. 
I mean, John John says, I, I, I do have to say, I didn't read every single brief that was filed in the case, but to suggest that we can learn about the effects of uh, same-sex marriage from the Netherlands and how its rate of marriage among straight people compares with that of Belgium or Germany or something seems to me scientifically kind of dubious. In any event, we have no evidence in this country at all at all that um, those states that have married same-sex couples for uh, 10 years or more have have seen any problems as a result of that. And what happens is that the conservatives on this issue immediately shift over to no-fault divorce and suggest that because no-fault divorce somehow led more people to get divorced, then same-sex marriage is going to have the same effect. Obviously, if you make it easier than it re- previously was for people to get divorced, they're going to get divorced a lot more often. That is, in fact, almost obvious. But uh, that has little or nothing to do with the issue here. Uh, and then, you know, the, I think it's important to understand that what, what the social science is about is not about whether or not same-sex marriage will uh, have some adverse effect on the behavior of straight people. The social science evidence is about the welfare of children being raised by same-sex couples versus those being raised by opposite-sex couples. And that social science, um, as uh, a brief I wrote and others have written, uh, reflects a very strong consensus uh, that there is no difference, that what matters is having a stable home and resources and good parents, not not the gender of your parents. Uh, and so that social science, A, is uh, pretty well established. But even if you think there's some controversy about it, that there might be some hidden problem with same-sex parents, the fact of the matter is those parents exist. They're out there right now. The states are placing children in those homes through adoption. And, and in other cases, people are having children uh, through um, a means that they are able to, you know, having, uh, getting pregnant, et cetera. And so um, th- those kids exist, and whether or not you think it's there, that uh, the homes that they're being raised in are ideal or not, the fact of the matter is that th- those kids deserve recognition and protection too, and that they shouldn't have to go through life with unmarried parents who are deemed to be second-class citizens based on a theory that somehow if we protect them and give their parents the same status of other parents by letting them marry, that somehow or other in some future uh, millennia, people are going to abandon marriage in droves. Why should they do that? Most of the American population supports same-sex marriage now. Why would they suddenly react negatively to the fact that equality has been decreed for this group of people? It just doesn't make any sense. All right. Uh, John, I want to turn now to the question of dignity. Uh, The word came up almost 20 times in the oral argument yesterday. Justice Kennedy invoked it five times. It was the first thing that both Solicitor General Don Verrilli and Mary Banuato, the plaintiff's lawyer, uh, said that basically the opportunity to marry is integral to human dignity. Justice Kennedy in the Lawrence decision kind of combined the equality and liberty protections of the Constitution to create a a broad and rather abstract right of dignity. Uh, Do you believe, John, that uh, if Justice Kennedy is true to his past jurisprudence, he will apply this dignitary right to recognize same-sex marriage? And would it require overturning those cases involving dignity, such as Lawrence and Windsor, to avoid that conclusion? Well, that's the $64,000 question, of course, and I, and, I, and I genuinely believe after attending the oral argument yesterday that Justice Kennedy is himself conflicted about this. Uh, if he believes there are no harms or no risk of harm at all to the institution and therefore to 
millions of, of kids, both uh, in the short term and over decades in the long term. You mentioned the word decades uh, several times as well. Um, uh, then, then I think he will write an opinion that focuses on the dignity of uh, letting people have the state recognize their private relationships. Uh, and if there's no harm to the institution, he sees no downside to that. But that, that, this is why the important about the social science discussion and the importance of his discussion about millennia, how we just don't know. Uh, and if those harms are as great as they turned out to be on, on no-fault divorce. And the reason I keep coming back to that is the, the exact same arguments that Paul is making now were made by the proponents of no-fault divorce then. This is, this is going to let a few people out of divorces who are in high-impact uh, and abusive marriages. It will not at all alter your marriage. It will not at all alter the institution. And we have seen a dramatic altering of the institution that has had profoundly and negative social consequences. The same thing is at issue here. We're talking about shifting the understanding of the institution to be about the dignity of the adult relationship and the state's imprimatur on that, rather than the family unit for the children that are the natural result of the uh, union of men and women. And when I make that shift, the notion that there's not going to be any adverse in impact, that the, that the institution will no longer serve as the draw because we've completely removed the cultural norm that it, that it provided before, I think is just folly. And Justice Kennedy seemed to recognize that. And I think that's the question. Does that outweigh his concerns? And I, I fully acknowledge other parts of the, the oral argument. He, he, he talked about dignity, and he talked about it at length in, in Lawrence, and he talked about it at length in Windsor. Uh, does the concern about dignity outweigh those potentially catastrophic cultural uh, harms, the societal harms? Uh, that's, I think, the important question that Justice Kennedy is grappling with. But he's also grappling with an additional question. Uh, since we don't know the answer to how that balances out, do I get to decide? Uh, this is the important part about the, you know, do, you know, we we think we know better over from the wisdom of the ages, uh, and 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 then you kick in his his strong commitment to federalism and letting the American people decide controversial questions like this, policy judgments that go to the root of our democratic system of government, and and he used the word dignity multiple times a year ago in the Schuette case when he upheld Michigan's decision to to prohibit race-based affirmative action. Uh, he used the word dignity over and over again about the dignity of the voters, the American people, uh, in a democratic form of government to decide these core social issues. And we ought not to remove the dignity from them, assuming they cannot re uh, reach some resolution on these controversial social questions. You, you, you translate that dignity into this case, and he ought to be standing with the states. Paul, your response to that, will Justice Kennedy uh, try to decide the case based on dignity or might he follow the other liberal justices who seem more interested in deciding it on the grounds that marriage is a fundamental right under the Due Process Clause? And what would the implications of a dignitary ruling or a liberty ruling be? I actually don't really uh, agree that there's a distinction between the two. He tends to use the word dignity when he's talking about fundamental rights, uh, that uh, liberties that, that, that are core, that people uh, are protected, have, have protection for, precisely because it confers some dignity on the individual. And so yesterday it was striking to see Michigan uh, disclaiming any interest whatever on the value in the value of marriage to the the two married people uh, saying we we don't care whether it confers dignity we don't care whether or not it makes their lives better or enriches them or makes them safer all we care about 
is their uh, biological offspring. Uh, it's a very sort of cramped and impoverished view of what marriage is all about, as uh, Mary Bonato said in her closing. Uh, and I think Justice Kennedy was completely nonplussed by this. I mean, so of course, marriage is about dignity. It's about uh, this is this case is about a group of people who wanted to share in the ennobling aspects of life bonds together. And he said that over and over again. He understands the the value of marriage as as something that enriches and protects the lives of the individual marital partners, not their just their children. And so it would seem to me that he very much agrees with the other justices you mentioned who see uh, the right to make that choice and that commitment as a fundamental right that, that has existed for many years and been recognized over and over again uh, in, uh, the, with respect to heterosexuals. And, and then when you add in the Lawrence point, the, the recognition written by Justice Kennedy that the life partnerships of, of gay people are every bit as uh, valuable and indeed indistinguishable from from those of, the, of straight people, it's hard to see, and from my point of view, how he gets to the conclusion that somehow we're going to continue to uh, allow states to have this uh, second-class status for people who can form families that are protected by law, can have children, but we're not going to give them any uh, formal recognition as, uh, as marital partners. Uh, you know, there is this subtext in the case about how democracy ought to rule here. We ought to uh, let the voters decide this, uh, and the, the, you know, it seems to me that that is the, the subtext always when people are opposing an assertion of a constitutional claim. Uh, but the, ultimately, the question is, does our constitution speak to this or not? Because if it does, then the democratic institutions don't make the decision; the courts make the decision, interpreting the constitution. And the, the plaintiffs are invoking in this case is the basic guarantees of liberty and equality that are in the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, with respect to an interest, as Justice Kagan said, so fundamentally interest in marriage, uh, they're invoking those those guarantees just as other groups have done, just as the, the Lovings did in the first interracial marriage case back in 1968, uh, just as uh, gay people did in, in Lawrence in 2003 in demanding protection from criminal prosecution. Uh, these are the basic guarantees that, that do limit what democratic institutions can do, and I think the argument it's a very strong one here that uh, the, the 14th Amendment uh, precludes the states from continuing to exclude a group of uh, couples out there that are uh, simply demanding equality. John, can you take us through the consequences of a broad or a narrow decision uh, upholding uh, the a right of same-sex marriage? Um, what would the consequences be, for example, for religious uh, people who wanted exemptions from anti-gay discrimination laws if the court would recognize a broad fundamental right to uh, marriage? And would that be different than a narrower decision saying that it offends uh, dignitary rights uh, under rational basis review to deny same-sex marriage rights? Well, you know, uh, I don't think the the dignitary line would would be necessarily under rational basis review. The language will be more similar to what Justice Kennedy did in Lawrence, where he doesn't state what the level of review is. But I think people have generally viewed that decision as applying some form of heightened scrutiny, even though he didn't call it that. Uh, and so I agree with Paul on that. His his use of the word dignity kind of substitutes in for fundamental rights. The real question is, is there a fundamental right here, or are we redefining the long-established and recognized right? And that was, I think, the essence of Chief Justice Roberts' opening question, and on, uh, on which Justice Kennedy's uh, concerns about the millennial understanding here followed immediately. Uh, and so, I, uh, you know, he's he's 
grappling with whether there there is such a fundamental right uh, at, at issue here that ought to give. But there were two aspects of this raised during the oral argument about what happens if you say there is a fundamental right. Uh, Justice Alito asked Mary Bonotto, what about two men and two women in a, a marriage? And I thought her response was telling, no, the states don't have to do that because they have a, uh, a an important state interest in not altering their institution. Well, <laughs> that exact answer uh, would apply here. The states have a fundamental interest in not altering their understanding of the institution. The real question is who gets to define that understanding of the institution and the policy it serves? Is it about dignity of the adults? Uh, or is it rather about children having a right to be raised by the biological parents who are alone responsible for bringing them into the world? And that's the reason we have marriage, and therefore it doesn't, it doesn't violate anybody's liberty or equal protection rights not to extend it to a group of people that don't further that purpose. Uh, and the fact that there are same-sex couples raising adoptive kids uh, doesn't alter that biological connection to the institution. Uh, and if you if you alter that connection, you have dramatic consequences. And if you do so because it's a fundamental right, Justice Alito point, uh, pressed this issue a couple of times. What's the logic that would say uh, if it's all about the dignitary and loving relationships between the adults that it can't be two men and two women or that it can't be a stepfather and a stepson? That came up in the second part of the oral argument uh, uh, where Tennessee refused to recognize a, an, an other state's sanctioned marriage uh, between a stepfather and a stepdaughter. Uh, does the state have to alter its fundamental public policy views about the importance of not having that happen uh, in order to accommodate other states' decisions? That was a central question. The other one was on religious liberty. Justice Scalia said, are, are we going to force ministers to perform same-sex weddings? I don't think that was the right question. The right question is, will we, will we withdraw from the church, uh, nonprofit status, and the other benefits we have provided to churches if they refuse to, uh, to, to uh, uh, perform same-sex marriages while at the same time performing heterosexual marriages. And this is not speculation. We've already seen such claims being brought under state public accommodations laws against chapels and their ministers who refused uh, to perform same-sex marriages, and they've been held accountable under the public accommodation laws. So I think those kind of threats to religious liberty, uh, not just the bakers and the pizza makers and the flowers and the photographers, but ultimately uh, the, the religious institutions themselves, their, their, their public halls, uh, and, 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 and perhaps, uh, not, not, we're never going to see a, a forcing a minister to perform a same-sex ceremony, but we may say if you refuse to acknowledge the new public policy of the state that's been mandated by the Supreme Court, um, then, then you're not going to be entitled to have other state benefits like tax-exempt status or what have you if you don't go along. And I do think we will see that. Justice Scalia uh, raised that issue uh, in, in I, I think, not quite the way he wanted to, but I think that issue is part of, part of the dynamic. Great. Uh, one last question to each of you before closing arguments. Uh, Paul, can you channel Chief Justice John Roberts? On the one hand, he expressed concern that social opinion was changing quickly and the, shorts, and the court shouldn't uh, short-circuit that debate. On the other, he noted that uh, restrictions on gay marriage might be a form of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. How do you expect him to vote? Well, let me, before answering that, let me just say I, I think the idea that somehow requiring states to uh, have marriage equality under their civil laws, the idea that that would somehow lead uh, to a requirement that churches or ministers engage in uh, – have to accept marrying people that are contrary to their beliefs is simply implausible. The First Amendment is not going to go anywhere. 
and states can certainly accommodate all kinds of things with respect to religious institutions, and there's no reason to think that if they don't, that the Constitution won't protect those institutions. With respect to Chief Justice Roberts, he did ask a lot of questions that were um, suggested skepticism of the position of the plaintiffs, uh, but then later on he did suggest that uh, he might take seriously the argument that there is a gender discrimination problem with refusal to uh, marry same-sex couples because obviously the, the classification can be viewed as uh, giving some people rights and taking them away from other people based on the gender of who they want to marry. Uh, I, I personally find uh, it difficult to read what, where the Chief Justice was on these issues because he was both skeptical and apparently open at least to that argument. Uh, at least he asked the question. Sometimes, of course, justices ask questions just because something pops into their mind and they'd like to hear what somebody has to say about it, and you can't read much into it. Uh, I think time will tell whether the Chief Justice was uh, – making a serious inquiry, reflecting his, his real views, or simply uh, participating in the process. I'd love to hear what John has to say about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, John, I, I, John, what I, do you I have to with, say? Yes. I, I agree with that, and, I, and I, I've said the same thing about Justice Breyer's comments at the oral argument yesterday, which uh, uh, really pressed Mary Bonato uh, hard on this millennial question, but uh, uh, you know, he was equally hard the other direction. He, he seems to enjoy the game of... Uh, being devil's advocate, it's no matter who's at the podium. <laughs> so you can't read right. too much into those tea leaves. Uh, I, I do want to go back to this question about uh, that Paul says it's just uh, beyond comprehension to think that the ministers would be forced. The First Amendment no longer provides the protection that it once did. If it's a generally applicable law, uh, you don't have any right to a religious uh, liberty defense against that law. That's the effect of the old Employment Division versus Smith case. And the state's public accommodation laws that say do not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation are already being applied to force ministers that run chapels for profit rather than nonprofit uh, to uh, facilitate same-sex and to perform same-sex weddings as well as heterosex weddings. That's, that's the case up out of Ohio. So this is not speculation. It is happening already. And, uh, and, and it, I think it necessarily flows from a judgment imposed by the Supreme Court that uh, it is now the policy backed by our understanding of the Constitution that same-sex marriages must be treated on an equal par with opposite-sex marriages. No law or contrary position is going to be permitted under the state's public accommodation laws to survive. How long it will take to reach nonprofit, uh, 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 direct religious synagogues and churches uh, is, is an open question, but we've already seen it being applied in the for-profit chapel case, and I don't think it's much of a step beyond that to at least think that there will be some pressure, perhaps the revocation of the nonprofit status, uh, if if the church refuses to treat the two kinds of relationships that seek marriage in their church on a different basis. And uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which, which played in the Hobby Lobby case, would not apply in this context because these are state laws, not a federal law. And so I, I do think the threat is real. Uh, we're going to see it. We're going to see it in a lot of other contexts as well uh, with with other people saying, you know what, it, this this is so contrary to my own religious views that I am not going to help support your same-sex marriage ceremony. We're finding those uh, cases all the time, the, the florist, the baker, and what have you. Uh, so I, I do think there's a serious threat to religious claims that will flow from this. Great. Well, gentlemen, it's time for closing arguments in this absolutely fascinating debate. Uh, Paul Smith, let me ask you, how do you expect the court to rule on what grounds and what do you expect the consequences of the decision to be? 
Well, I think uh, it's you know as for the reasons we've made clear today, there's some uncertainty about that. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I kind of came into the case thinking that Justice Kennedy likely was ready to uh, uh, rule for the marriage equality side, and I didn't leave the argument having changed my mind. Uh, so my guess is he will write the opinion. It'll be some form of uh, stated or unstated heightened scrutiny uh, along the lines of Lawrence and Windsor, and that uh, uh, he will say that it is time to uh, have uh, marriage extended to same-sex couples across the country, uh, and the court will will so hold. Uh, yeah, I'm not certain about that, but I think that would be my, my best prediction in terms of what the consequences of that will be. I think that uh, there, there will continue to be cases about uh, – private discrimination and when it is justified by religious uh, arguments and when it isn't. And uh, this is a line that we're going to be spending a lot of time drawing for the next decade or two in terms of when business, the differences between businesses and other kinds of institutions that have religious focuses and have more plausible claims to uh, religious uh, rights than, say, a, a regular business. Uh, my, my own sense is in the long run, the, the line will work itself out and uh, purely secular businesses won't be able to say, we're not going to serve gay people just because we don't like them or we don't believe that they are. We believe they are sinners. Uh, but what's interesting is I don't think the marriage case really makes much of a difference. That issue's out there already and will be out there, whatever the court does in this case. Thank you so much for that, uh, Paul Smith. Uh, John Eastman, how do you expect the Supreme Court to rule in the same-sex marriage cases? On what grounds? And what do you expect the consequences of the decision to be? So the couple of points I agree with, Paul, and I, it's likely to be a 5-4 decision, and it's very likely that Justice Kennedy we will be deciding vote and will write the opinion. Uh, and I, uh, you look at Romer, you look at Lawrence, you look at Windsor, all three opinions written by Justice Kennedy. One has to begin with the presumption that he's probably leaning uh, going in in the direction that Paul suggests. Um, but, but I'm encouraged uh, and cautiously optimistic from the argument that he understands the consequences of taking that step, both to our democratic institutions, but also to the institution of marriage, and that that's weighing heavy on him, and that it may weigh heavily enough that he would uh, join with uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Scalia and Alito and Thomas and not take that step, that leave this to play out in the political process, where the various kind of accommodations that Paul is talking about being worked out in the religious liberty front have a much greater opportunity to see the light of day, because that will be part of the political process discussion. It's much harder to get there when you've imposed this as a, as a newfound constitutional right, because then that sets, that limits the terms of the debate and makes it much more difficult to achieve accommodation and compromise and what have you. So he, I, think, I think there's a, a distinct possibility that he would, uh, cognizant of all of those concerns, uh, not, not find that the 14th Amendment, written back in 1868, requires every state to re redefine marriage uh, away from its biological uh, complementarity of men and women. Uh, if that's not the case, if he does go the way Paul believes he's going to go, then it's not just the religious liberty lines that we're going to have trouble with, but, but what other kinds of marriages. Uh, we saw in Utah, for example, that immediately after the federal courts there struck down Utah's uh, man-woman marriage law, uh, that they have then now struck down the polygamous cohabitation law. They've not yet reached the ban on polygamous marriage, but that you know, follows as a matter of of, of logic from the opinion. We will see adult sibling cases. We're already seeing those starting to pop up. Uh, we'll see uh, uh, consenting adult uh, uh, 
uh, who are within the bands of the level of consanguinity in a number of states. Uh, we'll, so we've got the number, we've got the age of consent laws that will be challenged uh, increasingly down. That became part of the conversation in the oral argument yesterday. This will be a whole new world of litigation. Say, well, if, if you've recognized that relationship because of the love and commitment to, to them, uh, then you must recognize ours as well. Are you saying that our love and commitment is any less significant, any more to be treated as second-class citizen, to use uh, the language of the other side in this? And the answer is that, of course not. That was the issue Justice Alito tried to press, and there was never an adequate response to that about how uh, uh, if you m remove from the, 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 the natural limitation on marriage, the one rooted in biology and our human nature, uh, to some other limitation that is just arbitrarily drawn, then how do you draw that line to stop all these other consequences? And the answer is you can't do it as a matter of logic or law, and those cases will flow relatively quickly. And I think it will be uh, a, a further nail in the coffin of, of the value of the institution of marriage that, uh, that has existed, uh, in, in, in Kennedy's word, for millennia. And, and we really ought to be very careful of thinking that us nine on this court know better than the wisdom of the ages. Thank you so much, Paul Smith and John Eastman, for an illuminating, substantive, and truly intelligent debate about one of the most hotly contested constitutional questions of our time. Uh, please do join us on June 2nd at the National Constitution Center and on NPR and podcast when John Eastman uh, returns uh, to debate the marriage equality question with Sharif Gurgis. Uh, on the other side will be Evan Wolfson and Kenji Yoshino, and that debate will take place at the opening of a new exhibit at the National Constitution Center, Speaking Out for Equality, the Constitution, Gay Rights, and the Supreme Court, which explains and sets out both sides in the important constitutional debate about same-sex marriage. And of course, as always, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.